right, so two weeks ago we entered in uh, Revelation chapter 4, we entered into the throne room of heaven, and we observed their worship. And worship is a major theme in Revelation. You've seen it come up a few different times. It's a, it's, it's a major theme uh, because of the worthiness of Christ. That is, that is a huge focus of Revelation. You have to put that in the context of its first readers, people who are living in the Roman Empire, who are being commanded, uh, demanded that they uh, worship the emperor, that they worship various pagan gods. Um, and the worship of those gods was very much an exchange. You know, I make this sacrifice to this god so I have a good crop and make a sacrifice to this god so that I make money and a sacrifice to this god so that my wife is nice and fertile and we have lots of uh, children. Worship of uh, God in heaven is not about an exchange. It's about him being worthy. And we observed uh, two weeks ago a couple of different flavors, if you will, of worship. First of all, we see all of creation, all living creatures worship by virtue of having been created. In the same way that a great masterpiece is a testament to the skill of the artist. All of creation, all all creatures on the earth, everything that has breath praises God because they are created by God and their very creation exhibits that glory of their creator. Then we've witnessed the overcomers worshiping because of the creation. And their worship is distinctive and really beautiful because uh, it's not simply their creation that's calling out God's glory. They are, as individuals, recognizing and choosing God's glory. They're recognizing uh, that God is worthy and they're choosing to do something about it. And that's exceptionally beautiful. Well, today's chapter really sort of expands on that theme. It amplifies this particular truth because in today's chapter, uh, where chapter 4, uh, Christ is worshipped as the creator, in chapter 5, Christ is worshipped as both creator and savior. And if we get right down to it, this is what worship is supposed to be in the church today. We praise Jesus, and we also acknowledge his sacrifice. So during the course of this service, we praise the Lord, and we share a symbolic meal together, remembering the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. We praise him as creator and also savior. This should be the highest form of worship, but we are human. And so we often sort of lose our bead. We lose the purpose. We get confused. We might ask, is, is Christ so insecure that he needs us to tell us constantly how great he is? Is that, is that what worship is about? Do we have an obligation to prop up the divine self-esteem? The absurdity of this leads to a kind of tokenism. Tokenism like giving dad a tie on Father's Day even though your dad doesn't ever wear ties. 
We're going to give him something because that's what we're supposed to do. And it's the thought that counts, and he'll appreciate the thought. Sometimes I wonder if we don't worship as if we're doing God a favor. Such worship becomes kind of passive, uninspired. What it really becomes is efficient, because the main criteria for this worship is, does it end on time? Here's the thing, folks. If you're doing it right, worship is an affirmation that your competing priorities are not really nearly as important as you think. God made us, and after we messed everything up, God redeems us. What's happening in your life right now that competes with this. It's not Christ's insecurity, it's our vanity that makes worship worship essential. Worship sets the record straight about who has done great things, who is worthy. And when will we have done enough worship? Well, let's just say we haven't reached that point yet. In 2,000 years of church history, we have not quite worshipped Christ enough to, to match what he's worth. Jesus doesn't owe us anything, but he has given us everything. And Christ's primary contribution to our worship is being worthy of it. Just being worthy of it. And that is the primary theme of the fifth chapter of Revelation. And so we begin with verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seal? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Okay, so there's a lot going on here already. Let's break it down a little bit. First off, what we need to understand is that to this audience, to this Roman Empire audience, a scroll of seven seals was a will. It's in a last will and testament. That's how they would have understood that reference. There's some other documents that could have been sealed in a similar way, but by far the most common document to be sealed this way was a will. And the reason for that is uh, if you were a wealthy person and you were making out your will, you would go have that will recorded into the public record. But that was prohibitively expensive. And so if you didn't want to have your will read into the public record, what you would do is you would uh, have a, a uh, a recorder or secretary, some person who writes out the, the will. You would have an executor, somebody who's assigned to see to it that the will is carried out. And then you would have five witnesses. You get all these people together. They're all aware of what you put in your will. You roll it up. They wrap string around the scroll. And then they put a big dollop of clay or wax on the ends of that string to seal it together, and then they put their seal, it's often in a ring, sometimes a 
hand stamp, but they would put their seal into that to, that, was, that was individual, unique to them. The summary of the will, because the will couldn't be opened until after the death of the individual for whom the will was, a summary of the will was often written on the outside. So in this passage, it says that was writing on the inside and the outside. That's, that's the picture that would have popped into the minds of this Roman audience. After the person's death, the recorder, the executor, and at least three of the original witnesses had to be present in order to attest that this will is legitimate. Now, John, in all fairness, never expressly states that this is a will. But he doesn't correct the perception either. And we know how the audience would have perceived it, and he kind of leaves that sitting there. While the specific contents of this scroll are never really overtly addressed, what is fairly clear is that the scroll represents the ultimate fulfillment of God's perfect will. This is the specific information that John's audience is seeking. They are living through times of trial and persecution. What they want to know is, how does God work all of this out? When and how will God make everything right again? Now, this sort of sets the stage for the next few chapters, because the next few chapters, as each seal is broken, there are all of these sort of divine events that take place, and some of them are pretty terrible uh, uh, and, and, and we'll, we'll get into all of that. But none of that is really about the content of the scroll. It's really about the things leading up to the scroll being completely opened. Leading up to that perfect fulfillment that everyone's waiting for. The first, in this chapter, there's a bit of showmanship that goes on. And it works like this. An angel comes out and in a loud voice says, who is worthy to open this scroll? And all of creation falls silent. In heaven and earth and under the earth. So essentially we're saying uh, among all the heavenly beings, all the creatures, the angels, all the living and all the dead, there's no one to answer this call. It all falls silent. John begins to weep. Because the scroll represents the fulfillment of God's will, right? His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. He says, wait, wait, there's, there's no, nobody that can see this through. And then this elder approaches him. In verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to be able to open the scroll in its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Okay, so first, there is this fundamental truth that the vision carefully illustrates for us, and that is this. There is none other in heaven or earth or under the earth who is worthy. 
There's no one else. So why do we worship? Because Christ alone is both creator and redeemer. There is no ambition, no purpose in your life that even remotely competes with this truth. Why do we worship? Well, as we kind of fill our lives with our own self-importance, we do well to remember the source of our existence and the source of our salvation. I have confidence that some of us in this room have and will do great things. Some of us in this room have and will do great things even for the kingdom of God. But when do we balance the scales against what Jesus Christ has done for us? Worthy of our worship. This, uh, honestly, John's attention is now shifted. John is, is, is told by this elder, look to the lion. Look to the lion of Judah. He's the one. He's the one who's worthy. And John turns his attention to the lion, only it's not a lion. The, the lion is a slaughtered lamb. A little dream logic at work here. The lion is a slaughtered lamb because Jesus has accomplished what he has accomplished, not by his might, but by his sacrifice. The, this is the great juxtaposition of the gospel. That we are sinful and broken and wretched, and yet we elevate ourselves in pride. And Christ is pure and whole and perfect, and he surrenders himself in humility. As our creator, he's already worthy of the praise that we often fail to give him. As our savior, he offers us redemption and forgiveness that we could not possibly deserve. He has seven horns that represent his omnipotence. That's a big uh, $10 theological word. Omni meaning all or universal. Potent meaning power or authority. He is all powerful. He has perfect and absolute power that he exercises with perfect and absolute grace. The seven eyes represent his omniscience, his universal consciousness. He is all-seeing. He has perfect knowledge and awareness. Nothing escapes his sight. And his spirit is everywhere. The point of this elaborate divine production is this. Not only is Jesus the one who's worthy, but Jesus alone is worthy to open all seven seals. This is a, on its surface an apparent breach of etiquette. Where are the other witnesses? The message of this story is not that Jesus is, is, has the authority, is worthy to open one of the seals, it's that all seven seals... He can open, and only he can open. He is all five witnesses. He is the executor. He is the recorder. It's all him. And what's kind of cool about this is this is exactly what he's been telling us through the previous chapters. 
You remember that in the letters to the seven churches, he announces himself seven different ways. He has been attesting that he is all seven witnesses. He is the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the lampstands, whose presence in the church is a fulfillment of a promise that he'll be with us always, even to the end of the age. He is the first and the last, the one who died and now lives again. In fact, it's his death that triggers the reading of the will. He is the one who has the sharp two-edged sword in his mouth. In other words, he is the word of God incarnate. And the next letter, he gets more overt. He just says, the one who is the son of God, the keeper of the spirit of God, the holder of the keys to the kingdom of David, the heir to its throne, the creator and the true witness. And now in the throne room, it's revealed to us that he is the lion of Judah and he is the lamb of God. Christ and Christ alone fulfills the requirements of every seal. And so in verse 8, when he had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to God, and they will reign upon the earth. And here is where this weird kind of ethereal vision becomes tangible and very personal. Jesus has written us into the story as a kingdom and a priesthood. Not only is Jesus our creator, which would have been enough to make him worthy of our worship, but he's also our savior, which would have been enough to make him worthy of our worship. But he has also invited each of us to live as his kingdom people, and to intercede as priests from within that kingdom, to intercede with the world, between Christ and the world. Now, we, we all lose the bead. We all miss the point sometimes. But if you're not at all overwhelmed by his love, if you're not at all overwhelmed by his sacrifice, by this grand plan, by your inclusion in the plan, if you imagine that there is any dream, any task, any endeavor, any goal in your life that is more worthy than being a kingdom of priests before Christ, you're doing worship wrong. Verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. And I heard every created thing which is in heaven or on the earth or under the earth or on the sea and all things in them saying, to him 
who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be the blessing, the glory, the honor, the glory, and the dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures were saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. In other words, heaven and earth explode with worship in response to the incomparable worthiness of Jesus Christ. Why do we worship? To satisfy some abstract requirement that Jesus has given us for what church service is supposed to be. To, to boost God's ego. Brothers and sisters, in the face of all that Christ has done, in the face of all that he will do, how can we not worship? We worship so many lesser things, ourselves included. We worship so many lesser things that are clearly unworthy. How could we not worship one as worthy as Jesus Christ?